Articles of Faith is a weekly interview show featuring scholars and writers who have written about the doctrines and teachings of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Articles of Faith is a production of Fair Mormon and is hosted by Nick Galetti. Greg Smith studied physiology and English at the University of Alberta, but escaped into medical school before earning his degree. He then did his medical residency at Montreal, Quebec, learning all the medical vocabulary and all the French-Canadian slang that he didn't learn during his LDS mission to Paris, France. He is now an old-style country doctor in rural Alberta with interests in internal medicine and psychiatry. Smith has a particular research interest in Latter-day Saint plural marriage and has been published in The Farms Review and elsewhere on this and other topics. He was an associate editor of the Mormon Studies Review from 2011 to 2012. With 12 years of classical piano training, he is a lifelong audiophile and owns far too many MP3s. He lives happily with his one indulgent wife, four extraordinary children, and two cats. He is also a member of Fair Mormon and has been since 2005. Greg helps manage the Fair Wiki page and has contributed to multiple online journals as a reviewer of various issues and movements in and surrounding Mormon culture and theology. So welcome, Dr. Gregory L. Smith. Thanks. Greg is fine. <laughs> I, tell my, I, tell my, I tell my patients they can call me anything they want except the defendant. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I, I said in your intro that you're kind of a reviewer of sorts, but uh, and that you've written reviews on certain books and websites and even efforts and teachings of some individuals, but you really feel more like a reconciler than a reviewer. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's interesting that you put it that way, I suppose. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer in kind of a, a big tent kind of approach to, to the vast majority of things. I, I think there are a few essentials for the gospel or the church, you know, but I think those are really uh, fairly basic and fairly uh, minimal in a sense. Okay. Well, you you do a good bit of work, as we said, also with Fair Mormon, who, of course, is producing this podcast and distributing it. So let's put out there your involvement with Fair Mormon. What What is your role with the organization? Uh, well, when, when I started, I did what most of us did, which was, I think, our... Uh, our Ask the Apologist or, or Ask a Question service, you know, where people would just write in. So I, I kind of jumped into that, of course. And then about a year after I joined, I think it was, uh, we set up the, the first wiki that we had. And the intent there was kind of, in retrospect, laughably modest. Okay. Uh, our, our goal or the intent was something we'd noticed, which, which anybody who spends any time reading anti-Mormon literature, either from, you know, long ago or, or contemporary, is that it's incredibly incestuous, if I can use that word. You know, it all, you know, anything modern kind of goes back to Gerald and Sandra Tanner, and, and they kind of all go back to a few really early, early works too, you know. And, and what we were noticing with our, with our question and answer service is we were getting the same sorts of questions over and over again, and if we were lucky, we had kind of cut and pasted them. So, so what we started to do is, is almost as a lark, I think, we said, I know what let's do. Let's let's make a web page or a wiki where every time we find the same question, we can put it in and we'll create kind of a genealogy of of anti-Mormonism, sort of. You know, like this patient gets it, this person, sorry, this is not patient, I'm 
wearing my other hat. Yeah, this person, this writer gets it from this writer who gets it from uh, Gerald and Sandra Tanner who get it from Fawn Brody. You know, and you can you can it, it's really quite easy to to trace that that hierarchy, if you will. So we started to do that, and I said, "Oh, that sounds fun." You know, I'll I'll do that, and then kind of my obsessive compulsive tendencies kicked in, and I thought, "Well, why don't we just put a few links to maybe answers to these questions while we're doing it?" And and that was meant to be again be very minimalistic, but I just kept dumping more and more in there, and I, I think the guy in charge kind of just said, "Oh, let Smith do whatever he's doing." You know, he he, <laughs> he kind of gave up trying to rein yeah, me in, so I just started throwing stuff in there, you know, and 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 then very quickly we realized. And I wish we could say we'd planned it, but I don't think we did. Very quickly, we realized that this could be an incredibly powerful tool that, you know, all this stuff that we were kind of saving ourselves and copy-pasting whenever somebody asked us a question, we thought, well, why can't we just, you know, put that out there for everybody? And then as we, we write stuff, we'll, we'll do it. So, so that's kind of how it came about. And it was, a, it was a fun sort of experience to be a part, something that kind of grew organically. So in retrospect, if we had to do it again, we, you know, if we'd planned that we were going to do that, we would have set some things up differently, I think, and, and done it differently. So, so you might say it had a bit of a rocky or a rocky start just because some of what we did initially wasn't what we ended up doing. And we kind of had to revamp how we organized it. Uh, Roger Nicholson joined us uh, a few years later and he came to us fresh from the, the edit wars on Wikipedia and he had, you know, an enormous amount of technical ability there and, and a very good ability to kind of uh, organize stuff by hierarchy and to use templates and, and just to make it much, much more efficient. Uh, and so he came along right at the right time, right where I was starting to feel like I'd kind of maxed out my ability or, you know, I kind of didn't know where to go with it yet. Then Roger came and kind of showed me the light and he now supervises all our web content. So he started out working for me and now I work for him, which is, which is wonderful. Well, at this point, uh, you know, we, we talk about this Fair Mormon wiki, but there, there might even be people that don't understand what makes the wiki format what it is. Why, is it, why, why did that end up being the one you guys chose? What are its strengths, its weaknesses? Uh, why is it relevant to, right. to this topic? Well, the, the strength of it, I think, is that it's a collaborative tool. I mean, what we were doing before is we would, we would mostly work by email, which you know, is certainly better than faxing or snail mailing uh, papers back and forth. So, you know, someone, I'd write a draft of something and I'd ping it out to a list and then people would comment on it or, or edit it in Word and then ping it back. And, you know, how do you keep all this, this straight? With the wiki, you can do it all online. You know, I could type something in, post a link. People, anybody could go in and edit it. And, uh, you know, so like we said at the beginning, if you're, if you're an egoist or if you're particularly enamored of your own prose, don't work on the wiki because it's going to get, uh, you know, this is it's going to get edited and savaged and someone may say, no, that's dumb, you know, and change it. And uh, which again is fine. So that was one of the advantages. Uh, the second is that it, uh, it, it kind of put us out there into the internet, uh, ecosystem, I think, you know, and now when people search a topic, uh, the fair wiki will come up, you know. So instead of just getting a string of uh, of anti Mormon or critical websites, the fair wiki is at least kind of there in the in the discussion, you know, which I think is an important thing for for balance. Before, if anybody kind of wanted what I think was a lot of good material, they had to know about us and they had to actually write us a letter and we had to write them back, you know. But now it's all just kind of kind of out there. So the wiki format allows you to be search engine friendly. And be kind of like an encyclopedia online, and but yet in a very searchable, kind of editable, editable way, yeah. Format. And uh, 
And and the other thing that again I didn't really appreciate at the beginning, not having you know, I kind of just taught myself as I went along, but that that Roger really helped us see is is it can be it can be a very modular sort of thing. And and in the last year or so, I, I think Roger's really run with that. And we've we've tried to make everything almost like little if you think of it like little Lego bricks, you know. And so we we just try to distill each issue to its own little Lego brick. And then we can combine those bricks in whatever way we want. So if if a new book comes out, for example, that's got its its own laundry list of criticisms, all of which, as I say, have usually been, you know, asked and answered a, a dozen times before, we don't have to kind of reinvent the wheel. We can just say, okay, well, I'm going to take this brick and plug it in, and then I'll put this brick and plug it in, and it, it can be very tailored to whatever we we want. You know, in the past, we'd take a book and we'd say, okay, we got something on this here, and, and we'd kind of redo a whole big document in a sense, which, and it's harder for the reader because they, because the things that we were, we were tra- aiming for completeness, but a given book may not need that much completeness for a given issue, you know? So people would get a lot of extraneous information and, and that's good for some kind of readers, but other people I think would get bogged down in it. So this way it's a little more targetable, if you will, at, at what we're trying to respond to. Sure. And people can go, they can access this by going to fairmormon.org, and then there's a little link there that says, you know, answer base, essentially. Right. Find, find answers to things. So people will be coming, would you say mostly to the, to the Fair Mormon Wiki to find answers to questions that they have, or is this for preparing to give a lesson, a, a mix of both? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, that's in a sense, that's almost the beauty of it is that people can use it for whatever they want. Um, you'll see kind of the, like I talked about, our initial intent was to make it a uh, a kind of genealogy of anti-Mormonism in a sense. And you'll, you'll still see that to a degree kind of in the uh, uh, early back in its evolutionary history, you might say. You know, there's this, these vestiges of that. Like every page will usually have something that say, you know, for a link of the critical sources, click here. And if you click that, it takes you to a separate page that kind of lists every mention of this particular criticism that we've run onto. And, and that's been done in an ad hoc way. It's not like we sat down with every anti-Mormon book and laboriously poured through it. It's just when we find one, we, we throw it in, you know, okay. which is another advantage of the wiki is that it's, it's, uh, it's evolving and it's, and it's something that can be done very piecemeal. You know, I mean, a, a lot of the stuff that's in there is stuff that I had written almost for my own amusement, you know, uh, years ago in a sense. So it's probably been edited and, and evolved from then, but, but I quite like it just for my personal use, just because I, it's where I put a lot of my own notes and research in a way that I can find it again, in a sense. So, sure. Well, let's let's actually kind of address uh, use use the topic of evolution uh, sure. as as an example of what we mean by uh, something that someone may find in the Fair Mormon Wiki. So sure. there, there's a lot of different questions and quotes that have been compiled referring to what most people refer to as organic evolution or biological evolution. Sure. Uh, but, but even that term comes pretty heavily loaded. So just to, to get into this, and this is something that you've written on in The Interpreter, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, let, let's set sort of a foundation on what one might mean when they say evolution. Evolution. Yeah, well, as you say, that's a huge topic. Um, and I guess I have something of a professional interest in that, just that I did a lot of my undergraduate work in biology where, you know, evolution is the reigning paradigm. It's, it's difficult to understand a number of things in, in biology without evolution. 
even if you decide that there's nothing to it, you, you kind of need to understand the ideas to, to, to have an effective dialogue with the, the kind of research and stuff that's going on. So it's a, you know, it's a core, 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 core subject in that sense. So, you know, if you were to go to the, the wiki, for example, uh, you know, there's a section called Mormonism and Science, so you'd click on that, and then you'd skim down, and then I presume, I hope that uh, evolution or something is in there. Yeah, there it is, under Latter-day Saints Approaches to Science. That would look bad, wouldn't it? <laughs> and uh, so why is this an issue for people? Well, I mean, there's, there's a few things. I mean, uh, in the West, you know, in Western Europe, traditionally, uh, the Bible formed the basis for how people understood uh, the creation of the world and and everything that was on it, and uh, you know that began to get weakened to a degree because people, you know, had this very pre-modern idea about the age of the earth, and they kind of interpreted the the Bible literally in the sense that they the Bible talks about six or seven thousand years of, of time period, uh, and so they they took that fairly literally, and really there was no good reason for them not to, I suppose. Then, you know, even before Darwin, uh, people began to get this sense as they looked at the world around them and studied it more deeply that that that, that was a problematic idea, th- this idea of what's sometimes called deep time, you know, not just thousands of years, but, you know, thousands of thousands, millions, even billions of years, you know, this, this thing that's really very hard to conceptualize at all, even for those of us that are you know, how do you picture a billion? You can't really do it. I mean, those of us who, if we've, if we've you know, we're, we're accustomed as we take math and stuff to, to think about numbers in those terms, but that's a very abstract, almost artificial way of grappling with it. If you try to get it at, you know, if you think down and try to think about the planet going around the sun a billion times, I mean, that's, that gives me a little bit of vertigo. And, and that was certainly even more true for the early uh, thinkers on this that were before Darwin. Uh, and, and so that brought them all sorts of questions, you know, okay, so how does this fit with the Bible? And, you know, is the Bible wrong? You know, which was, of course, a radical notion. Uh, have we been reading the Bible wrong? And uh, all of this was coupled at the same time with this this rise in the influence or the importance or the prestige of science, you know. So, so just as these major challenges came along to to the religious view, uh, science was was growing in in prestige. And so what people began to do is they began to try to wed um, faith in the Bible or, or religious faith in kind of a rational framework, you know, to, to try to, and people had always done that to an extent, of course, but, but even more, you know, kind of the Enlightenment and the post-Enlightenment, this became very important to them. And so rather than faith being something that was a, a trust and a confidence or a Latter-day Saint would probably say, you know, a covenant-based relationship with God, uh, faith became almost an intellectual thing. It was a, an idea to which you would accede. You know, you'd say, oh yeah, I have faith in God. And what they meant by that was, I accept intellectually the proposition that that God exists. Right. And, and so you had this shift in how people thought about faith and the grounds for upon which they could uh, base that became shakier and shakier. Uh, But one thing to which everybody clung, uh, again, probably quite reasonably, was the complexity and and beauty of the world around them, uh, especially the living world. And so 
people more and more would would say, well, of course there's a God, just look at, you know, the human eye or, or an insect or a tree or, you know, which is a pretty compelling argument in some ways, uh, which was fine, except then Darwin came along. And, and Darwin's radical thing was not, as some people think, that he said there is no God and that, you know, or anything like that. It's that Darwin provided a potential means to get all that beauty and variety and complexity in a way that didn't require God's at least active involvement. Now, in another time and place, that might not have been such a radical idea. But coming when it did, with people having all these doubts and concerns about uh, about the whole idea of faith, you know, this whole idea of trusting something that you couldn't see empirically, potentially, uh, coming when it did, that yanked the last rug out from under this kind of post-enlightenment idea of faith. And that was devastating to people. You know, you can you can certainly follow that in the literature of the you know the late 1900s, uh, especially in Britain. You know, and so that's the the background for the problem. That was a long answer to a short question. <laughs> no, that's fine. You see my you see my why my wiki articles were long. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it, it is a question that rests on the minds of. of some Latter-day Saints and, and other people throughout the world. And I know I've been taught creationism in church and scientific theory in school, and they both seem to have merit, yet they also seem to be taught in a dichotomous way where you have to choose one or the other. And to to kind of set as a foundation for where we're going with this, uh, relating back to your article in The Interpreter, you actually give uh, a quote from the first presidency, or at least the minutes from the first presidency, that I think is kind of important to read kind of into the record. Sure, go ahead. So that, so that we have that. So uh, I'm going to quote it. It says, quote, The position of the church on the origin of man was published by the first presidency in 1909 and stated again by a different first presidency in 1925. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, basing its belief on divine revelation, ancient and modern, declares man to be the direct and lineal offspring of deity. Man is the child of God, formed in the divine image and endowed with divine attributes. The scriptures tell why man was created, but they do not tell how. Though the Lord has promised that he will tell that when he comes again, in the new reference Doctrine and Covenants 101, verses 32 through 33, uh, in 1931, where there was intense discussion on the issue of organic evolution, the first presidency of the church, then consisting of Presidents Heber J. Grant, Anthony W. Ivins, and Charles W. Nibley, addressed all of the general authorities of the church on the matter and concluded, Upon the fundamental doctrines of the church, we are all agreed. Our mission is to bear the message of the restored gospel to the world, leave geology, biology, archaeology, and anthropology, no one of which has to do with the salvation of the souls of mankind, to scientific research while we magnify our calling in the realm of the church. Upon one thing we should be able to agree, namely that Presidents Joseph F. Smith, John R. Winder, and Anthon H. Lund were right when they said Adam is the primal parent of our race, end quote. Now that came from the first presidency minutes in 1931. Now, does this statement constitute an official stance from the LDS Church on evolution? Well, I can't speak for the church, obviously, but uh, it, it seems pretty official to me. I, I would regard it as so. I mean, I, I would, of course, defer to anybody from the church who wanted to to clarify that. But yeah, as far as I, I can tell from my research, that really does seem to be the last, uh, the most detailed and, and probably most official view of the matter. It's, it's certainly been quoted in 
you know, places like the uh, Encyclopedia of Mormonism uh, and uh, in the BYU packet on evolution that was prepared, uh, you know, in response to these sorts of questions. Well, President Hinckley also made a, the following statement. He says, quote, what the church requires is only belief that Adam was the first man of what we would call the human race. Scientists right. can speculate on the rest, end quote. So with such a wide open field for faithful belief on the subject, why is there so much debate? Yeah, well, so the Mormons came into the discussion you know, right as, you know, we were, the church was being restored around the time that this whole ferment that I talked about, you know, was going on. So, so they were, of course, influenced by it, I think. Um, and, and the other thing you have to realize is that, is that Darwin's view of things, you know, we sometimes, we sometimes think, you know, Darwin came out and that kind of converted all the scientists. And then there was this, you know, triumphant march of, of Darwinism, but, but that really didn't happen. Darwin came out and then, uh, at the end of the 19, 19th century, he he really became quite eclipsed. Uh, there was a much bigger move to to something that was championed by by Heckel, who was one of the was a German embryologist. You know this idea of progress that there was something intrinsic in the nature of the world or of, of life that would tend to this this ever advancing improvement, complexity, etc. And there were a lot of things about Darwinian evolution that that weren't really settled until the kind of the 30s or 40s, the 1930s or 40s, so the 20th century. So there was this kind of eclipse of Darwinism. There's even a book called that, which is well worth reading. And then uh, and then this this resurgence. So a lot of the debate happened in the church uh, during that time when scientifically as well things were not and were not terribly clear cut. Um. And as everybody probably knows, uh, the, the big debate, uh, it kind of all came to a head in a debate between B.H. Uh, Roberts, who was one of the 70, and then Elder Joseph Fielding Smith, who was a member of the 12 and, and later a president of the church. Uh, and, and it was their kind of back and forth debate on this matter, which, which got fairly heated, uh, that provoked the first presidency statement that you've just kind of read there. And then as it happened, uh, Elder Smith's views, partly because of how long-lived he was, I think, and partly uh, because of his, you know, obvious spiritual gifts in many areas and the fact that he became president of the church, uh, probably tended to get more airtime, I think, in the, the subsequent years, you know, through the, the 50s and 60s. And that was only heightened by his, his son-in-law, Bruce R. McConkie, who was, you know, again, a, an incredibly influential thinker and writer and, uh, and publisher, so I think that's kind of where we got where we are, is, uh, is there was this intense disagreement about it. Uh, officially, the church kind of tried to freeze discussion and kind of, you know, as you've read, kind of say, look, you guys, leave this alone. And, uh, and so individuals have been kind of free to, to, to say their own thing. And so I think the, the prestige and just the circulation of, of whoever was making a given case probably has influenced how we, we look at the matter. Well, and you, you have this article that we referred to earlier in the interpreter. It's entitled Endless Forms, Most Beautiful, The Uses and Abuses, uh, Abuses of Evolutionary Biology in Six Works. And the goal, I guess, of this article seems to be to bring out at least six different works that seem to represent a variety of different perspectives on the issue. Generally speaking, Christian, uh, not just LDS views on this, um, but you bring in these these different variety uh, a variety of different subjects. Um, 
And so when you when you went through and made this article, uh, why did you pick the six titles? Uh, let me read them off real quick uh, so people can have those on reference. It's uh, Michael Dowd, uh, his book, Thank, you, uh, Thank God for Evolution, Carl Giberson's Saving Darwin, How to Be a Christian and Believe in Evolution, um, Daniel Fairbanks' Relics of Eden, The Powerful Evidence of Evolution in Human DNA, uh, Howard C. Stutz, Let the Earth Bring Forth, and David C. Stove, uh, Darwinian Fairy Tales, Selfish Genes, Errors in Heredity, and Other Fables of Evolution, and then finally William Dembski's The End of Christianity, Finding a Good God in an Evil World. So why, why did you pick these titles in your discussion of evolution? Uh well, uh, I got the assignment in a sense when I was an editor at uh, at the Maxwell Institute, and uh, Lou Midgley, who's one of the editors there, has a uh, has a habit of of assigning me books, and uh, I tend to obey him. and And so, uh, so Lou said to me, "You need to read this uh, this book by Fairbanks and this book by Dembski. You should read these, and you should review them." And I thought, "Okay, okay, fair enough. You know, free books. I'm always up for that." So he sent me he sent me these books, and. You know, and I read them, and then I the other four I picked mainly because I I had read them at one time or another, and and so I didn't start out intending to do it this way, but I it soon became clear to me that you could address kind of a lot of issues just by looking at how a, a wide cross section of authors dealt with these issues, you know, and some I thought were were helpful and interesting, and some I thought were less helpful and interesting. So, uh, uh, and so it, it was. Uh, and you know, and uh, Lou Midgley's approach to, to reviews, which which I kind of like, is to say, you know, review the books, but you should also have something to say about the topic. You know, they aren't just reviews in a sense; they're an opportunity to to contribute to the discussion, uh, which is which is the hard part. You know, it's easy to say, oh, I liked this or I didn't like this, but it's a little harder to 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 hopefully contribute something that's at least uh, useful to the reader outside of, you know, just kind of a rehash of the, the contents. Well, I, I, we don't have time to go into each one of these, and I hope that people will take the time to, to read your article that we will have linked to this episode uh, at blog.fairmormon.org. So let's speak possibly in more broader terms. This topic of evolution, as with any topic that involves a heavy secular construct, and reconciling that with religious beliefs. It's, it's a very tricky proposition. There's even warnings against mixing the philosophies of men and mingling them with scriptural passages in modern-day revelation. Yet we hear quotes from President Hinckley leaving it kind of wide open to do so. So what exactly is the right formula for mixing science and religion specifically with the topic of evolution? Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know that there's one right one. I'll, I'll tell you how I've approached it. Um, if uh, I, I'm also, I have an entry on the uh, on the Mormon Scholars Testify website that Dan Peterson writes, and I I write a little about this there um, uh, because when I was you know growing up in the '80s in a in a rural Mormon town, I, I was one day in a church class, and uh, you know the teacher intimated pretty strongly that if you weren't a young earth creationist, you know, uh, that you were out of harmony with, with the church. And, and my response to that in, in the class, I remember it vividly was, uh, uh, much less diplomatic than it ought to have been. I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of burst out, uh, and I, 
I feel bad about it now, but I, in my own defense, it really wasn't planned or intentional. It was just this kind of gut level. I, I just burst out, what on earth are you talking about? You know, it was, it was, uh, maybe I'd been asleep at the switch. Maybe I hadn't realized this. I don't know. But I mean, it was just the first time I'd ever heard that. And, you know, I was a teenager, you know, I'd, I'd kind of presumed that I'd heard it all, you know. And, uh, and and so this kind of disturbed me. It wasn't that I knew anything about evolutionary biology. I mean, I, I probably couldn't have sat down and told you the basics of the theory or any of the evidence it was founded on, you know. Uh, I, the one thing I did know is I was reasonably sure that n- no scientist thought that humans had coexisted with dinosaurs. Uh, you know, I was at least that aware. And and it was kind of said, oh, yeah, there were dinosaurs walking around with Adam and Eve. And I, I, I you know, again, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, like, where, where are you getting this? And you know, so he quoted uh, the the teacher quoted uh, either Elder McConkie or, or or President Smith, and 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 that surprised me simply just because I hadn't heard it before. So I kind of went home to my parents and said, you know, because I didn't want to feel like I should be out of harmony with the the brethren on this matter. You know, like if if that was really something I was quote unquote required to believe, then I figured I had some work to do, and 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 they took an uh, in retrospect and a surprisingly. Uh, laissez-faire attitude for it. They just kind of said, oh, yeah, you know, people have got lots of opinions on that. And they just kind of threw some books at me and said, you know, here's, here's what various people have said. You should just sit down and read it, you know. So anyway, I kind of did this. And it was my first exposure in a serious way to the idea that, uh, that prophets and apostles could differ amongst themselves even, you know, which, which, is, which some people find disturbing, but I found kind of a liberating sort of idea. And, and, and so then I did, as, as maybe any uh, well-trained LDS uh, kid would do. I, I, I began to pray about this sort of thing, and and I had prayed about the Book of Mormon, and and had had really marvelous experiences that had had astonished me and convinced me, you know, beyond any doubt that I could muster that the Book of Mormon was the Word of God. And so I was kind of in, in, expecting a similar sort of thing here, you know, like show me the light, you know, show me where this is. And, and the response I got to that was was entirely different. It, the response I got was that there was, that I could kind of believe whatever I wanted and uh, I, you know, that it wasn't spiritually dangerous to explore these sorts of things. And, and then kind of this caution that I, that it wasn't my business to go around making converts to my point of view in the in the church, you know. So, I hope this comes across in what I write, that I, I try very hard not to, to steer people or to you know, to, to, to be dogmatic about this because I, I have it on what I feel like pretty good authority that I've got no business being dogmatic about it, you know, about evolution, about evolution. Yeah. And, uh, and, but, but, but again, that was an enormously liberating experience for me to, to get the sense from God that it was okay to think about and talk about these things. And yet at the same time it, that there was this kind of, uh, you know, intellectual humility that he almost commanded me to have, you know, this, this sense that, nobody's got this quite all figured out, you know, so go ahead and explore this, but, you know, don't be too cocksure, I guess, if, if, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. You know, it's an interesting subject, though, because, I mean, we have a history of people like Elder Widso and others that have made comments from time to time that seem to imply that there is some form of evolution that was used in creation. Uh, even Joseph Smith pointed out that the earth was organized for matter that already existed. 
Thus, to some degree, creation was the evolution of these elements into something that was multiplied by the hand and word of God. The earth itself evolved from space to organized matter to water to earth, and, and all these other forms came from this same process of organization, building stage upon stage in this creation. Uh, I mean, even even the human body, again, is another example of how it starts from this little single egg and evolves into a person. So there seems to be clearly a place for evolution in a creation model. So with that being said, what are some of the other questions that Latter-day Saints should be asking about evolution as far as being able to reconcile that with this idea that Adam is the first man? Uh, typically a creation model. Right. Well, I I think that LDS theology has a much better uh, standing to kind of address these sorts of things. As you pointed out, you know, we've never been ex nihilo creationists. You know, we don't we don't hold to the orthodox or the conventional Christian view that God, you know, created things out of nothing. It's it's always been this idea that matter is eternal, and and there also is this thread that runs through LDS thought about how how God masters natural law. You know, that God God doesn't just wave a magic wand in a sense, but that He's able to. To control or to, to influence things by his greater understanding or, or intelligence, as the scriptures call it. So, so right there, you know, you have a you have a model that would be fairly friendly, I think, or at least not hostile to to some form of, of evolutionary biology. The other thing, and and I think this is, and this didn't occur to me in t- for many years, and maybe it's not a profound thought, but but to me, it, it, it struck me quite profoundly when I when it finally did occur to me so maybe it'll strike somebody else and that is that uh, you know our view of 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 the whole plan of salvation is that God puts us on this earth and then leaves us free to choose right he leaves us free to exercise our moral agency we're free to do good or evil we're free to believe in him or not and as I've thought about it I've thought you know it's it's no wonder then that the world uh, can plausibly, or at least, you know, with with some intellectual rigor, be looked at as something not requiring God. If you if you had a a world that appeared to say be you know six thousand years old, uh, that's a pretty intellectually compelling case for the existence of God. Uh, if you know, if you had thing, if you had plants and animals that didn't seem to have any relation to each other, that seemed to each be the the product of an individual creative act. Again, it's pretty hard to see how you could look at that and say, oh, there is no God. And, uh, you know, even a, a really rabidly, you know, a, you know, evangelizing atheist like Richard Dawkins says, you know, evolution makes it possible to be an intellectually satisfied or, or comfortable atheist. And I think he's right. You know, without it, atheism as a, as a worldview didn't really take off in the West until there were things like evolution in place. And so, in a way... Uh, I don't think we should be at all surprised that the evidence that is only available to our senses looks like an evolved model. Because if it didn't, then that would be a smoking gun for God. And that's one thing that LDS theology says that we won't have. You know, there, you won't, God won't force us to believe in him. That brings up an interesting point, though. I mean, there are those that, that look at the heart of this discussion of science and religion, where one's ultimate goal is to disprove the other. Science will disprove religion or religion will disprove science. Uh, 
is the end result though, as far as LDS theology, that that science will prove the existence of of God, or that the biblical narrative is true? Is that kind of what will eventually happen? I don't think so. Again, I because I don't think that it's intended to. I don't think that God intends us to be able with with simply purely intellectual tools, you know, in the sense of, you know, publicly demonstrated evidence, like a, like a mathematical proof or, you know, the, the way you could derive the laws of motion of planets or something. That's not the point. The point is that there's, that there's evidence that can, I think, plausibly be interpreted in, in, in either way. And that, I think, is an important principle for Latter-day Saints to get, because it's, it's probably the thing that has if I can say it, rubbed me the wrong way in discussions I hear about it in church is, is I have hardly ever heard a discussion critical of, of evolutionary biology where those involved haven't seemed to completely misunderstand the evidence on which it's based. And I always try to say to people, look, if you're going to argue against this or, or any other idea, you've got to be very, very careful that you, you get the evidence right, that you show that you understand why people have come to the conclusions they have. Even if they're wrong, you've got to be. You've got to show that you understand where they're where they're coming from, and uh, and very often we don't do that, you know, because the sources that people tend to rely on to that tend to not do it very well. <laughs> uh, and so again, I don't think it's done in a malicious way, but I always try to tell people, look, if, if you believe this is all hooey, you know, God bless you. But if you're going to argue that it's hooey, you've got to be very careful that you get the 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 data right, because if you don't then what happens is someone later learns that you're, you know, misrepresenting this or that you don't understand it. And that not only undercuts your credibility, but it may undercut the credibility of what you're trying to argue for, which is the reality of God and, and everything else, you know. So you can really do, do a lot of damage by getting the data wrong. And, and that, in a sense, I, I think if, if I've had an approach to this, that's been my intent, to at least understand it as profoundly as I, as I can as kind of an interested amateur. You know, I, I didn't go on with training in it, but I, I know enough to kind of follow the argument. And we have a theology that's committed to God in a physical form that looks like us. You know, uh, God has hair. You know, he's a mammal in some sense. You know, I, I, I'm not going to speculate on God's physiology, but, uh, you know, I mean— uh, so we have, in a, in a, in a sense, an, an extra bit of work or an extra thing to work with is uh, evolution as conventionally understood is an undirected uh, process. You know, it, it works in the here and now. It doesn't look to the future. Uh, so, so you have to come to grips with that in, in some way, I think, and it behooves us to be aware of that. Well, see, this is just one good example of one of the answers that people can find, or at least some sources to look to when dealing with a subject like evolution. They can go to the Fair Mormon Wiki and read things like what you've written. There's other articles and quotes and things that they can draw from so that as they come to questions like this, they can find a place, a faithful place to turn to. And, I, and, and that's really kind of where, where this all comes back to, right? I mean, the, the whole purpose of this is to provide faithful answers. Right. And, and not, I think, to... Uh, to again to dictate the answers in a sense. Uh, I mean, I hope people find uh, we're doing some more work on that section. I, I think it'll be expanded even beyond uh, where it is now. But we we try to very much 
give the the breadth of discussion and belief that's been in the church, you know. So so it so we certainly don't try to play down or dismiss the views of Elder Smith and Elder McConkie. You know that that that's a very powerful stream in LDS thought, and it needs to be acknowledged and looked at. Uh, but it's not the only stream, you know. So this so I hope we do a decent job of kind of saying, you know, here's Elder Widso, here's Elder Talmadge, here's Elder 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 Smith. You know, there's kind of this breadth of of thought on it. Yeah. Well, excellent. I uh, I. I wanted to, uh, again, encourage people to go to the Fair Mormon Wiki. that uh, can be found at fairmormon.org. Uh, Greg Smith is, of course, a notable contributor and manager of that and is the ar- author of an article in The Interpreter that we've discussed here entitled Endless Forms, Most Beautiful, The Uses and Abuses of Evolutionary Biology in Six Works. And a link, again, to that article can be found for the posting of this episode at blog.fairmormon.org. Thank you very much, Greg Smith. My pleasure. Thanks for chatting. Thank you for listening to this episode of Articles of Faith with your host, Nick Galetti. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org. Tune in each Monday for another episode of Articles of Faith. Thank you for listening.